wouldn't you love to see God change the world today? So many times in history, when the church looked defeated, God's power erupted and there was a great revival and people by the thousands and hundreds of thousands came in. Would you love to see that in our day? What's the key? Heavenly Father, would you speak to us today and encourage, would you fill us with your imagination? It's through Christ I pray. Amen. The Bible is very clear that God's power is at work through those who seek him. But how is that power accessed? Last time we began introduced by saying, well, it begins with a holy desperation for God's power, as we see with the disciples in Mark chapter 9, where there is a boy, demon-possessed. The father brings the boy to the the disciples. They aren't able to heal him. Everybody is frustrated. And the disciples come to Jesus in desperation afterward. Jesus heals the young boy, sends them off. And they say, why? Why couldn't we heal him? And Jesus said, this kind, Mark 9, 29, this kind can only come out by nothing but prayer. Or in the older translations, by prayer and fasting. There must be a desperation, in other words, for God's power, like the disciples. The first step for God's power to be Come real in our lives is that we have to be frustrated by the situation around us, by the lostness around us, by the damage that Satan is doing to people around us. So we go to Jesus and say, Jesus, we need your power. What, what, what we're doing is not working. Help. Now, specifically, what does that look like if we're desperate for God's power? First, it means we are desperate because of God's holiness. We're driven by his holiness. And we're desperate for our own repentance. Again, we've noted that the older translations will translate verse 29 as saying nothing. This does not come out with anything but prayer or and then they said prayer and fasting. What the translators were doing is they understood that Jesus was saying more than just prayer because they'd been praying before. But it's like there's got to be a humility to the prayer. There's got to be a, a an urgency to the prayer. And so they add that by prayer and fasting. Because you see, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. One thing you may notice about great spiritual awakenings in history is that they all begin with repentance. People often get this notion that they think that they begin simply because people pray. No, they begin because people are driven by the holiness of God to repent of their own sin, to repent of everything within them that is not aligned to God. And that repentance and the desire for the holiness of God then drives them with a sense, with a heart for lost people because their desire is for lost people to know the holiness of God, for God to be honored and worshiped by all people because he is holy and worthy of worship. You may notice spiritual awakenings, you see, are never led by narcissists. God opposes the proud. Now, let's be honest. There is a lot of selfish pride in our desire for spiritual awakening. 
you know, I want to be a part of something great. I want God to use me. I want to make a difference. I, I want to have a legacy or whatever. I want to help other people. But as long as the theme there is I, 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 as long as the motivation is me, 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 then God opposes the proud. He's glad not to empower my pride. But the history of spiritual awakening is the history of broken people being impressed by the fact that God says, be holy because I am holy. See, selfish ambition is not strong enough to sustain our weeping for lost people. We weep for lost people as Jesus did because we see them as sheep without a holy shepherd. And it's the holiness of God that drives our desperation. That's why J.C. Riley, when he wrote of the great leaders of the 18th century, great awakening leaders like Whitfield and the Wesleys and others, he said they taught constantly the inseparable connection between true faith and personal holiness. They were driven in every way by the holiness of God. Um, this is why many have said, uh, William Castle, who's observed um, revivals in China, said revival means judgment day. People think, have the wrong idea about revivals. They think it's just something triumphant that God does. But it's first judgment day for God's church. And after the judgment, it is God's blessing. Peter said it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Empowerment is great, but it only follows judgment day because we are desperate for the holiness of God. That means for revival to really happen in our world, it begins when people like you and me fall on our faces before God and say, Lord, make us holy. Um, that's why you will not find many revivals among the Unitarians, you know. I would love for, I would love to be able to say, Lord, may revival begin among the Unitarians. You know, not with me. I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to repent. But the thing is, revival does not happen to people who are not, first of all, passionate about the holiness of God, the truth of God. Revival only takes place when the holiness of God is at the key. So like Isaiah, God says, who I send, who will go for me? And Isaiah is willing. He says, here am I, send me. But I'm a man of unclean lips, living among people of unclean lips. And what's God do? God takes care of Isaiah's holiness before he can empower him to change the world. Luther and the Reformation movement, what is it except a repentance movement. The Wesleys began a movement, and they called it a holiness movement. So we pray God do it again. James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If God's going to bring revival in our day, are we desperate for it? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, no, we're not. He says the because the first thing we have to be really desperate for is the holiness of God. And until we get desperate for the holiness of God, we're not really desperate for revival. 
2 Chronicles 16, for the eyes of the Lord roam through the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. God, make us desperate for your holiness. And may we, in turn, repent ourselves. But the second thing that we, what desperation looks like if we're going to be desperate for God's power, not just desperate for his holiness, means we're desperate for his power alone. You know, the disciples are frustrated because what worked for them in the past isn't working for them this time. They tried what they had done in the past, but the demon-possessed boy was still demon-possessed. Can't you hear them saying this worked before? It's worked for the other apostles before. Why doesn't it work now? Now, the good news is that powerlessness drives them to Jesus, and Jesus gives them the reason. If there's ever been a time in history when Christians have allowed the flesh to flourish, it's today. We have more books and more conferences and more experts than ever more tools and more strategies, both of, from the world and not. I mean, I know, I, I know some ministers spend more time listening to the latest business guru than they do to, you know, the, the book of Genesis. But how many of us are saying, find ourselves saying as a result, God, God what's worked in the past isn't working now. What's worked for others isn't working for us. I mean, look at the state of our families. Look at the state of our children. Look at the state of, uh, of, of, of churches that just are not growing as they once did. Here's the good news. The way to experience God's power completely is to trust his word completely. Trust in him completely. I think what we all need is a little Gideon moment. You know, Gideon is a warrior that God comes to and says, wipe out the Midianites. And as a good warrior, Gideon's got, okay, I got a plan. And he rounds up 30,000 troops. And God says, not a bad plan, except for this time. You know, God says, no, if you go in against Midianites with 30,000 troops, everybody's going to say, oh, look at Gideon. Oh, he's a great general. Oh, look at how strong his army is. They're stronger than the Midianites. No, God says, they won't be drawn to me. They won't give power, give, give worship to me. They won't trust me. So in this case, he says, Gideon, 30,000 troops, bad. 3,000 troops, good. Now, if there's one word that you would use to describe Gideon's emotions when God is winnowing down his, his troops from 30,000 to 3,000, what would the word be except desperation? You know, if I'm, if I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, God, are you nuts? I know I'm thinking, God, if you don't show up, we lose. God, it is clear. There's no way we can win without your power. But God shows up and Gideon wins and everybody sees. Look at what God has done. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And when the Midianites speak of their fear, by the way, of Israel... They don't speak of their fear of Gideon's armies. They speak of their fear of Gideon's God. What are the 30,000 troops that you're trusting in to win your battles? What would it look like for you to go into battle with God and just 300 troops, but trusting in him completely? I think I've shared the Billy Graham story recently 
where as a young man, he was ministering, he was preaching, but he had a friend who became impressed with liberal teachers, with progressive theology. And his friend was starting to stray from faith and he was starting to influence Billy Graham and Billy Graham, Billy Graham's faith in God began to wane. He began to lose power in his preaching. And so he began studying the Bible afresh. And he said, as he buried himself in the Bible, he just kept reading, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And he said, then he realized that he had never fully accepted the truth of Scripture. He had never fully surrendered the weight of his heart and his life to the trustworthiness of God and his word. And once he did that, he preached with the power and authority. People said he preached with the power and authority like never before. Billy Graham had moved from trusting in his 30,000 troops. I will trust in myself. I will trust in my gifts. I will trust in my abilities. I will trust in modern thinkers to trust in God and just a few troops to say, God, I will trust your word completely. Have we gotten too strong for our own good? What is your, I will trust God and statement? I will trust God and my ability to manage my own time. How many people don't sacrifice their time for the kingdom because that would really require them trusting God for their time. God said, put me first. But to put him first would mean not putting sports and work and other things first. It would make make them so different. But the result of not trusting God, of, of, of like, I will trust God and there's a powerlessness in their lives. I will trust God and my ability to manage my energy. I can't serve in the church because I don't want to get burned out. Oh, great. You know, I remember one time I was about to, I was asked to speak at college and I was really frustrated because I hadn't had the time to prepare to put into it. And I'm a slow processor. And I remember complaining to a friend of mine uh, saying, man, if I just had a little more time, I know that I could do better with this. And my friend said to me, and if Gideon just had 30,000 troops, he really could have beaten up on those Midianites. In other words, he was saying, Brett, Gideon only had 300 troops in God. God has not given you 30,000 troops. You go with what you have, with what God has given you. How many, when was the last time you said, I will serve because it's the right thing to do And I'm going to trust God to give me the strength, to give me the time to do other things that matter less. God is saying to you, do you want my power? You got to be desperate for it. You got to place yourself in a position like, like Gideon, where you can't trust your 30,000 troops. You must trust God. Like Billy Graham 
You have to say, I fully surrender the weight of my heart and life to the trustworthiness of God and his word. And then you will discover, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Let me ask, when was the last time you really believed that God could do the impossible? When was the last time you took action in your life because you believed it was an obedience to God and you really believed that there's nothing that is impossible for God? With God, things all are possible. All things are possible. When was the last time you faced some unbeatable foe? Some Midianite army, some demon-possessed boy and really believed if God doesn't give me the power, I lose, but God is greater than this situation. God will win the day. I've shared before a story that I want to give you an update on. It's a young, about a young Chinese man in a Chinese province. He was in his early 20s, hadn't been a Christian very long, didn't know the Bible very well. Curtis Sargent had trained him for about a week to share the gospel. Now, he'd never read a book on church planting, never had a lot of training on leading some disciple-making movement or anything like that. But at the end of the week, at the end of the training, Curtis produced a map of the region where they lived in China. All the counties, all the towns marked off clearly. Curtis said, in this region, there are millions and millions of people who've never heard about Jesus for the first time. Who will go and share Jesus with these people? And this 20-year-old man who hadn't been a Christian very long said, I will go. And Curtis said, how? How will you do it? And he held his Bible and he said, with his Bible in my hand and God's love in my heart and the Holy Spirit to empower me, I have everything I need to go back to my village and to reach my family and friends and to make disciples and to start a church. Now, how many, how, how many mistakes do you think that he made? Uh, how many questions do you think he wasn't able to answer? But how many, how many of you really believe that he experienced the power of God despite his weakness? And so he went, not by might, not by power, but with the whole weight of his faith fully dependent on the Spirit of God. Now, here's the best part of the story. A couple of months ago, I was with Curtis Sargent, and I asked him, I heard that story indirectly, and so I asked him, I said, Curtis, tell me the story that I've heard about the young guy that you trained in China and... And he didn't know a lot. He was a young Christian and hadn't had a whole lot of training. But you asked who's going to go to these people who've never heard about Jesus before and, and share Jesus and start churches. And he said, I will go. And, and you said, well, how you do that? And he said, you know, with, with, with the Bible in my hand and God's love in my heart and the Holy Spirit to empower me, I have all I need to go back and to reach lost people and to start a church. I said, Curtis, can you tell me that story again in your own words? Curtis paused for a second, and he hesitated. He kind of gave me this blank stare. And then he said, Brett, to be honest with you, I'm at a loss. He said, that kind of thing has happened so often, I can't think of just one example. Now let that sink in. 
Can that be said of our church, of many churches today? Can't be said of new life. See, here's the one test of desperation for God's power. How many people are we leading who are like that man? How many people are we reproducing like that? Or, by the contrast, how many people are we leading to Christ who are basically saying, I will go with Jesus once I have 30,000 troops. I'll live a radical life for Christ once I have my 30,000 troops in place. Boy, I'll make a difference then. How many people, though, do we have who are saying, I don't need 30,000 troops. I need Jesus. I need his word. I need the power of his Holy Spirit. And his word is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in my weakness. And I will go and I will make disciples for Christ by his power. People keep asking why there are no massive disciple-making movements in the United States. And then they'll go work on some new systems and some reorganization and write some new books. But maybe what we need is not right methods or right vision or right reorganizations. Could it be that maybe God is looking for the right kind of people who are desperate for his holiness, who are desperate in their dependence on him and his power alone? Because who makes the best disciple makers? Desperate disciple makers. Desperate for God's power. Desperate for God's glory. Heavenly Father, we are desperate for you. We live in desperate times. Turn on the news every day and we just see the world is going nuts and people are just so lost. And if the church is going to be making a difference in our generation, powerful Lord, you have to do it through us. And so we thank you for leading us to this moment of desperation. God, what's worked in the past is not working now. We are desperate for you. We repent of our sin, of our lack of love for you and lost people. And now we say, Lord, would you, would you use our humble hands for your glory? Through Christ we pray. Amen. So, What's it mean for you to go with your 300 troops and trust God and share your faith and make disciples this week for his glory?